This is the Cloud Security Today podcast, where leaders learn how to get cloud security done. And now your host, Matt Chiodi. In this month's episode, we feature Alan Friedman from the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, otherwise known as CISA. This is a more new agency in the United States, obviously focused on all things cybersecurity. And I wanted to have Alan on specifically because he is an expert in the field of software security. And something that he's been really passionate about is the whole concept of the Software Bill of Materials, otherwise known as the SBOM. So in this interview, we talk about all different things from the SBOM to the white paper that CISA released back in April of 23 on the concept of secure by design and secure by default. And what I really appreciated about Alan is that he has, you know, there's there's nothing that's economically motivating him in anything that he is saying. He's truly a public policy expert. And I think this can really help you and your organization because you can see that one of the things we'll talk about is some of the economic drivers that are behind secure by default and secure by design. So as I usually say, get your pen and paper, get your notepad out, take some notes because you're going to learn about not just software supply chain security, but where concepts like secure by design and secure by default can fit into your security program. One other favor I'd love to ask you, if you love the podcast, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a huge deal in terms of the reach of our program. And if you don't like it, as your mom would always say, just don't say anything, but we hope you do. Drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Cloud SEC today at gmail.com. Again, that's cloud SEC today at gmail.com. Alan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. So, all right. Whenever I see, I've never worked in government. So whenever I see somebody in government, I'm always like super intrigued to like, you know, how did they get there? So career question for you is how does one become a senior advisor and strategist for, for, for CISA or CISA? What did your career path look like? Uh, like most of the people in the world I know who have really interesting careers, very much a random walk, uh, started off as a wannabe computer scientist, undergrad studied, uh, cryptography turns out wasn't good enough to write code, wasn't smart enough to write proofs, uh, ended up getting my PhD in, uh, applied economics and, um, which means I'm not a real economist. Uh, uh, post in computer science, realized, no, right the first time, uh, still not a computer scientist. Uh, and by then I was sort of mediocre at so many different things that I sort of gravitated to Washington. Uh, and so I was sort of a, one of the first people doing security and public policy together at a think tank called the Brooklyn's Institution. And, uh, then one day, a mentor of mine who was at the White House at the time said, hey, this tiny part of the Department of Commerce is looking for someone who can help uh, sort of build and innovate new communities around security. Because I've been focused on security and economics. We talk about a market failure in security economics, and I wrote about that. Uh, and so I, I joined government at first. It was certainly a short stint. 
uh, to say, what can the government do? And the role that I found myself in was trying to build these communities where the government is the catalyst, but the, the work and the expertise comes from a huge, diverse community from around the world. And much to my surprise, I was like, oh, this is fun. And I love the mission. And so I was at NTI for a while, working on a bunch of different things, uh, coordinated vulnerability disclosure. I ran sort of the first public government program on let's bring together hackers and product security teams. Uh, and I did some work on IoT. And then I was in the right place in the right time to sort of encounter the concept of SBOM. It's been around for a while. Uh, but uh, it seemed like it was the right time to pull together a community. And then, of course, Log4j happened, SolarWinds happened, and oh, everyone yes. was like, hey, we don't know what's in our software. Uh, and so I moved over to CISA to help make that a, a bigger issue. So I think of that as sort of, you know, almost the corporate acquisition model going from startup to the bigger agency. What is your What does your typical day look like? Uh, I get to have a lot of fun. Um, one of the things we do is we run public working groups or we help facilitate public working groups on, you know, all these different topics that are relevant to SBOM, you know, how do we share them? How do we promote adoption? How do we think about what SBOM means for cloud? Uh, I meet with a lot of companies, especially small companies. One of my favorite parts of my job is talking to startups. Uh, I can't buy things, but I always want to hear what people are, are engaging in. We work across uh, the other government. So my day-to-day -day is is basically spent on video calls, but a, a very rich community. Um, everyone from, you know, small open source projects to, uh, you know, joining uh, calls with senior folks at DOD to talk about what implementation and various things look like. That is fascinating. So uh, that is uh, interesting. And, you know, you, now a couple other questions have popped in my mind, but what have what have you found most rewarding? And obviously, any I know some of what you work on you can't talk about. Um, otherwise, we'd have to neutralize our entire audience, so we don't <laughs> want to have to do that. So, but what you know, what have you what have you found most rewarding? I mean, any any specifics would be would be fine. You know, it, it's a it's a little bit of a cliche, but what I love is that the the work around software supply chain transparency and SBOM really has been a community effort. And so seeing people sort of say, oh, well, this topic is fun. I'm going to go take it over to the Open Source Security Foundation or, hey, the OWASP Cyclone DX community has a new thing. Isn't that great? So watching this become, go from a small project to be something that everyone in the world is now engaging with has been really rewarding. Um, Japan just announced that they're having a new joint research effort across some of their big tech companies. Uh, the folks at the European Commission have said, oh, we're going to integrate SBOM into their regulations. Uh, and of course, I've already talked about all the amazing startups that are saying, well, hey, here's a part of the problem that no one's really working on yet. So let's let's tackle that corner. What do you? It's funny you mentioned startups a couple times. Uh, I'm currently at a startup, but what what do you? When you're speaking with startups, I know that kind of they fall into a couple different categories, right? You have cybersecurity startups that are trying to build a solution to solve a problem, and then you have you know startups, I guess, outside that domain, right? So I'm curious, what 
when you're speaking with startups that are outside of you know a security product, and they're you know you're talking to them about S bombs, what I'm curious, like, do you where do you see kind of the adoption of that? I know we're going to get into kind of what S bombs are all that later, but like, I'm just curious, like, the interest from non you know security startups. What is is there interest, and in, what does that what does that look like adoption wise? I think there is. Um, obviously, right, small organizations, scarce resources. Uh, one, one thing that's really fun when I, when I do get to chat with, uh, organizations about this is they're saying, oh, well, this is, especially in the cloud native world, this is easy for them. Mm. Uh, right. The oh, yeah. world started off, uh, we were all at the same starting point, which is everyone, there were a bunch of people kind of interested, but no one was doing it the same way. And, and today really five years later since you know the government got involved uh there's such diversity of where we are right people who make legacy ot systems or just yesterday i was talking to some folks from the airport who have to maintain the f-16 um that's hmm. a legacy system but hmm. if you're a new organization and you're using modern tools modern tool chains this isn't hard for you um so that's, that's one of these. The other thing, and this surprised me, uh, at RSA a few months ago, um, I started talking to more uh, venture capital organizations. Uh, this, they had reached out to me to sort of learn more. Uh, and their funders, or their, their fundees, rather, the companies that they were supporting. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I wasn't expecting, because in government we often hear that, right, compliance bad. Uh, security and risk-based security good, compliance bad. Whereas right. when I was talking to some of the CISOs of non-security startups, they're like, you know, we want to do this, but we're only going to get headcount if this is a box we have to tick. And it will help us do our job if someone makes us do this. And that's always a very paradoxical part uh, where sometimes the organizations need a good excuse to do the right thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen that in, in not all businesses, but a lot of businesses where it's like, you know, if there's a regulation that requires it, of course we have to do that. But beyond that, boy, you really, really have to make a strong business case. So sometimes it is nice to have that to point to saying like, you know, we have to do that. And so I, I want to be clear, sure. right? We're, we're not gung-ho advocating for across the board regulation. But it is one of those things where we, we try to keep that in mind of what are the incentives that drive change. So back in April of 23, CISA published a white paper called Shifting the Balance of Cybersecurity Risk, Principles and Approaches for Security by Design and Default. And in there, it talks about uh, a number of different secure by design tactics, such as memory-safe programming languages, parameterized queries, Let's let's talk a little bit. A lot of times when I read these things, there's a lot of theory in them, and I'm like, oh wait a second, what does this look like in the real world? So maybe if you could give us a real world example or a case study where some of these principles have been applied to strengthen a system security. Sure. Um, so first, the the I'm I'm really excited to be part of the sort of secure by design and secure by default effort. We try to sort of in shorthand, it's SBD two. Um, because it's, hmm. they're, they're important, uh, compliments where things out of the box today aren't secure. How do we move towards that approach? Uh, and I will also be honest, 
I've heard, right, the term secure by design has been around for a long time and I've never liked it. It's a little bit like the old joke of uh, the hot air balloonist who gets blown off course and shouts down, you know, hey, can you tell me where I am? And someone shouts out, you're lost. It's not wrong. <laughs> it's just not actionable. And what we try That's to right. do with this vision is start with an acknowledgement that it is bananas that software that we use and pay for still delivers with it not just the occasional vulnerability but very real risks that require massive investments from customers so what do we do about that and we identified a couple of things uh, one of the prominent long-term visions is uh based on some analysis uh, from the cve data set the set of vulnerabilities that we all know about found out that like a massive percentage, and we can talk about the metrics and the methodology about how you measure it, but we'll say more than half of all known vulnerabilities come from memory issues. And so one of our goals, long-term sort of push, uh, how do we get memory-safe languages into the world? Another of these issues is logging, where... Uh, the, there are a bunch of long details that weren't included, uh, that aren't included by major organizations that would actually give them real and actionable threat intelligence. Uh, and many folks may remember in uh, July, there were some concerns. Uh, there was some uh, about uh, one company in particular, uh, Microsoft, uh, sort of having, you had to pay a little extra for logs. And indeed, right. I, I want to call out one of my partner government agencies, the Department of State, which was paying for these extra logs. And because of that, was able to find a pretty serious ongoing attack that as of when we're talking, we're still learning about it. Uh, now, CISA had been talking with major tech vendors for a while about how do we make security relevant logs more available and part of the basic support model. Because again, organizations may not pay for it without a clear vision of what's going to do it. So I have a, but I'm already paying for support. So let's talk about making them, again, the default. Uh, and we're really excited that uh, Microsoft announced that they are going to be making uh, the these more of these security relevant logs. Uh, and this is where CISA had been working with them and other partners had sort of had a collective collaborative conversation about which ones, right? Obviously, you don't want to flood someone with every single bit from your NetFlow. But what are the things that actually allow actionable um, intelligence? And, and uh, in fact, uh, the head, the, the Eric Goldstein, who is the uh, executive assistant director, he's the cyber in CISA, uh, wrote a blog post uh, publicly saying this is when, you know, when tech vendors make important logging information available for free, everyone wins. I love that. I love that. And that's certainly something that we have been talking about for years. And it's almost, you call it the, it's almost a security tax, right? That's on a lot of products, which is, you know, even let's talk about something even maybe more basic. When you look at a lot of, for example, SaaS subscriptions, if you want single sign-on, right? If you want SAML capabilities, guess what? Sometimes there is a massive 
massive upcharge. In fact, if you go to there's a website, SSO.tax, <laughs> you can actually see it's like a, it's like a wall of shame where I don't know who the guy is who created it, but somebody created it and it shows just some of the exorbitant charges to go, you know, what should be basically, you know, a seatbelt. Uh, and they're charging a massive price for it. So I think this this kind of fits right along into that that same thing. And and Matt, your analogy of uh, the seatbelt is something that we that's been a strong inspiration for the whole CISA team. Is right this model of car safety, automotive safety, took a non-trivial amount of time to go uh, to be adopted. Um, and once it was, it was a massive support. It was a driver of new products. Uh, why should I upgrade? Why should I buy a new car? Well, this one has all the latest safety features. Because it turns out at the end of the day, people do care about their families and they do care about their organizational security. Um, but we just need to sort of make that the default path uh, and the designed in path. It's in retrospect. I think that was that in the 1970s that NHTSA made that basically seatbelts a requirement. Um, I think they were actually I have to go back and look. I think the agency was was created in the seventies and sometime late late seventies, eighties is when that basically that requirement came out. And it seems so basic now we think about it like, my God, like were there ever cars without seatbelts or now, you know, airbags, ABS, like some of these things that we consider just like I would never buy a car without it if there was one that was offered, right? Do you think like in another five to ten years we'll look back on software and think like Oh my gosh! How did I ever buy software, you know, without X, Y? That'll seem so basic to us. You know, I I think we're going to get there. Um, today, even if you sort of follow all of the latest vuln and breach news, we do differentiate between the oh, that's a pretty clever hack, and wait, how on earth did that attack succeed? Every organization today should have some basic defenses against that. All of our software, that should be, that is, and, and I think we judge uh, accordingly. So we're, one of my, you know, personal purchases is to make sure that the security community takes a look behind us every so often and acknowledge our progress. It's still a dumpster fire, but, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time focusing on software supply chain. And I think one of the reasons why we are now focusing on software supply chain is because that has become a much more dangerous attack surface in part because threat actors don't have an easy time getting through the front door today, uh, whether you're attacking mm-hmm. products or you're attacking uh, organizations. Don't get me wrong, security is still terrible, but it is lots of the things that used to be slam dunks aren't anymore from an attacker and from a red team perspective. So we touched on this um, right at the beginning of the podcast, but the whole concept of the SBOM or the software build of materials, um, that's something that has gotten uh, fairly popular in terms of what I see on LinkedIn and just even when I'm speaking with customers, you know, and it's also strongly advocated in, in the white paper. So I think I've seen... Some people talk about it as if it's a silver bullet. It's going to solve everything. So I know this is a a personal thing for you. So maybe walk us through, first off, what is the SBOM? And then what are some misconceptions uh, around it that you typically hear? So I keep a pack of Twinkies on my desk uh, as a reminder that if you go to the store and you buy anything that you're going to feed your family, it's going to come with a list of ingredients. And 
why do we expect more transparency from a non-biodegradable snack than we do from the software that runs our organizations, our critical infrastructure, our national security systems? And so that's the concept. Um, I, I, I will say, never a good idea to disagree with the, the podcast host. I haven't seen people say SBOM is a silver bullet. What I have heard is people say, other people are saying SBOM is a silver bullet. And I always like to say, you know, the SB and SBOM does not stand for silver bullet. It's not supposed to solve all of our problems. And in fact, let's go back to that list of ingredients analogy. Will a list of ingredients by itself prevent someone in your family from having something that they're violently allergic to? No. Will it by itself keep me on my now a distant memory 2023 diet? Nope. Will it uh, keep me on a plant-based diet or uh, help me follow a you know religious-based dietary restriction? Absolutely not. But good luck doing any of those things without the list of ingredients. And so mm. what we think of SBOM as is SBOM is a data layer. That's all it is. But it's a data layer that we desperately need and we don't have today. Once we have that data layer, we'll be able to turn data into intelligence, into action. And one of the analogies in security might be giving a vulnerability an identifier, giving a CVE number. Doesn't fix a damn thing on your network, but hmm. all of the tools that we've built and all of the infrastructure and the processes and yes, the compliance models depend on having that data layer being able to track that this vulnerability is in fact different from that vulnerability uh and so that's really where we're trying to go is to create uh an expectation of transparency put it another way why on earth would you buy software from someone who couldn't give you an s-bomb what does that say about the security of that organization but beyond security your total cost of ownership, right? If you're working with a SaaS provider and like, we don't know what we have, that should be a large red warning flag. Prisma Cloud secures infrastructure, applications, data, and entitlements across the world's largest clouds, all from a single unified solution. With a combination of cloud service provider APIs and a unified agent framework, users gain unmatched visibility and protection. Prisma Cloud also integrates with any continuous integration and continuous delivery workflow to secure cloud infrastructure and applications early in development. You can scan infrastructure as code templates, container images, serverless functions, and more while gaining powerful full stack runtime protection. This is unified security for DevOps and security teams. To find out more, go to prismacloud.io. So if we think about, you know, in my view, that I guess the, the first time an S-bomb kind of came onto my purview was sometimes shortly after the whole solar winds attack is where I think people really started to think about or at least, you know, a more 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 broadly software supply chain security. That to me that was a big one, right? In in a scenario like that, would would if there was an S bomb available, would that have helped? Uh, would that how, how or maybe how would that have helped if there had been for you know for that software? 
Uh, great question. Uh, and that was actually one of the things that immediately after solo wins we, we heard, which is, hey, would an S-bomb have prevented this? And we always try to be very, very clear. Uh, right? The, the nature of the attack was the adversary compromised the actual tools that was used by a company. Now there's a but. All of the things that we know we're going to need to prevent this kind of attack, or at very least to detect it in real time, start with this idea of transparency of your supply chain. So it is a necessary but not sufficient condition. And in fact, when you talk to Tom, the, the CISO of SolarWinds, um, right, he'll all, right, he's, he's backing up. We've been on panels together where, you know, all of the things we've built, SBOM was critical, was, was, was essential, but it, we also are aware that, you know, we've built other tools that rest on that data infrastructure that help map to it. The other thing I'll say is SBOM, I think, is the first major idea of a software development artifact where there's a thing that you can show how it was generated and you can pass downstream to your customers or to a government that says, this is what I have. Moving forward, I think we're going to see lots more artifacts. Right now we have a great discussion and, and NIST has a wonderful document called uh, 800-218, which is the Secure Software Development Framework. And it helps anyone sort of get a handle on secure software development. Here are all the pieces. But what it doesn't have is, and here's how you prove to someone else that you have them, right? Well, that's the challenge. Mm. It's the, the danger of process standards. Process standards are great, but they, they're hard to comply. So SBOM is the first piece. Moving forward, I think we're going to see more pieces of that kind of work where your tools themselves will be able to securely generate artifacts that you can use for your risk management and that you can work with your customers. Um, and a lot of this, there's a lot of great work happening in uh, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and, and other work, other, and you know, many of your listeners will be familiar with something called Intoto which is starting to sort of piece together all those. Um, it's been exciting to see that go from pure research, right? It started off at, uh, with some folks from NYU and Purdue, and now we're starting to build that into advanced, very modern projects that are well-funded. And I think over time, you're gonna see more and more uh, organizations using artifacts, not just S-bombs, um, and, and pretty soon it's going to be expected, but we've got some kinks. We need to make sure things can scale first. You mentioned that, you know, we were talking about the white paper and some of the secure by design tactics. We talked about memory safe programming languages. When we think about this in relation specifically to the cloud, you mentioned that, you know, when you're talking to startups or companies that are cloud native to start with, right, they're building in the cloud, they're using containers, serverless, they're using you know, um, composable, you know, composable architectures, right. Uh, using things like Terraform scripts and whatnot. You said that it's, it's fairly, e it's much easier for them, right. To be able to generate things like S bombs, where does, where does like kind of that, you know, with S bombs, memory safe programming languages around 
around cloud, like, I guess some examples, my questions are, you know, what are examples of memory safe programming languages and where does this all come together with the SBOM? Like, how does that, how does some of those help us to understand how that comes together? Uh, oh, that's a fun question. So again, a lot of what we're trying to do with secure by design is help shift the community towards the modern tools that we already have, right? We don't, a lot of this stuff won't require inventing new things, uh, right? The government won't have to sort of get, hey, let's have some modern programming languages that are memory safe and really good fits for the cloud native world because we have, right? Uh, really, when we talk about the dangers of a lack of memory safety, we mean C, um, the cloud native world has relatively little. See, there's some, uh, and especially as you move into the containerized world, and that's where Rust comes in. Uh, mm. So Rust is, is fantastic. Uh, it's got, it's meant to be understandable and accessible by C engineers, um, and it comes out a lot of the community, but uh, it has a lot of great safety properties. And a lot of our early attention has been on, well, how do we push this into uh, critical infrastructure, you know, stuff. But I think we're going to see a lot of this into the cloud native world. And of course, uh, Golang and Python and other uh, things that are actually used by uh, cloud engineers are memory safe today. And so I think, uh, you know, drifting away from rails and such will be, is, is everyone knows that we have to get there eventually. Um, but, uh, we, we have a lot of the modern tools and tool chains that already have this built in. And so how do we help people so the make way that switch, give them the excuse of saying, Hey, this is now we're, we're going to declare this officially tech debt, uh, and give you the aspiration of making it secure by design. And, and then it becomes a matter of how do we actually go from this aspirational vision uh, to getting organizations to invest in it. So the white paper, it, it talks about some of the common misconceptions with secure by design, secure by, secure by default principles. From your experience, maybe if you could share, you know, some more misconceptions, how you address them, what, what, what have you found? Well, the right one is just the expectation that we're looking for perfect security. Uh, and, and right. Everyone is aware it once you've spent some time thinking about the philosophy of security, that that's simply not acceptable. Uh, and so that has driven us towards resiliency. Uh, so that's a big piece of it. And resiliency is one of these awkward terms where everyone knows it. Lots of us use it. Can't really quite define it. Uh, and mathematical modeling of resiliency is a really interesting field but very tricky and hard to map to software engineering. So what are the resiliency pieces that we want? Well, things like vulnerability disclosure policies, making sure that you have the ability to manage that. Uh, things like uh, actually having declared vulnerabilities for SaaS applications. Too often we fix a flaw, but there's no documentation. There's no way to track it to sort of figure out, oh, does, are other people also do other people also have this flaw? Uh, and of course, going back to, you know, my favorite topic of SBOM, 
where making sure that not just the suppliers, but maybe the downstream customers as well have an idea of what's in a piece of software so that we can better respond when new risks emerge. So you, you mentioned the, the vulnerability disclosure programs, um, something that has had quite an emergence over the last couple of years. If you, if you think about your, you know, your career, maybe over the last five or so years, is there anything, any kind of memorable incident or anything that kind of stands out that would maybe underscore the importance of vulnerability disclosure programs, specifically as it relates to software supply chain security? Uh, fun question. Uh, one thing I do want to acknowledge is just how much, how far we've come, right? Those of us who've been in security for a little while, we need to remember, and again, this comes with the appreciate the wins that we have. Um, pretty recently, this was still a red hot topic, both inside the U.S. government, uh, industry, the hacker community. Um, you know, no free bugs was definitely you know, it's a famous declaration in DEFCON. You know, we're not going to give anyone free bugs. Um, even in the, the research world, there was some discussion of, is it better just to drop O'Day publicly or should you work with them? Um, and now this is not just seen as good practice, but we have senior government officials, again, not just the U.S., UK, Australia, Europe, France, publicly thanking security researchers as a community uh, for the role that they play uh, in in securing all of software. Uh, the, the Netherlands also been a great leader in this space. Um, one story that I think is is quite interesting that's also relevant to software supply chain is the uh, Ripple Twenty bug. Uh, which is a series of vulnerabilities that were found in a TCP library called Trek hmm. uh, that was used, that is used in a huge number of IoT devices and embedded systems that are used in uh, critical infrastructure. That was found in, in 2020 uh, by uh, an Israeli company named JSOF. And one of the things they had to do is they had to say, well, we want to figure out who has this. We want to do the right thing of disclosing to companies that might be affected before we give our black hat. And they had to go on LinkedIn and look for anyone <laughs> who was bragging. They, they, they paid for like the special LinkedIn subscription so they could find anyone and say, oh, yes, I have experience with Trek IP look at where they worked and and try to do some guesswork of okay and, and so they did some disclosure to some major manufacturers that they would only know about because of OSINT work essentially so this mm. is how a lot of these issues are tied together where you want to be able to sort of tell people that there's a risk you want to be able to do so in a coordinated way and you need the data to help you with that and so we're tying together you know good security, good resiliency, and good data all together to sort of make it easier and cheaper to do the right thing. I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here. So I don't know if you've read the book by Nassim Tlaib, uh, Anti-Fragile. I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you've read that or not, but- Familiar with Tlaib, um, haven't read that book. Yeah. Okay. So the whole concept of anti-fragility is that you know uh, I, I, this kind of popped in my head because you were talking about resiliency and all that. 
And the concept with anti-fragile is our systems that get stronger with certain stressors, right? Not extreme stressors, but just certain stressors. The human body is a great example of an anti-fragile system, right? It's good if I go out for a, well, maybe it's not good for all of us, but you go out for a two, three mile run, right? It might be really hard the first couple of times you do it, but your system adapts, right? That is a healthy stressor. Um, you know, people who do intermittent fasting, that is an example of a healthy stressor that it's debatable, but it's supposed to make your body stronger, right? So that's an example. I bring this up because a lot of times we talk about in cybersecurity resilience, resiliency, yeah. right? And, you know, that's like, I think he uses the example in the book of, you know, like a rock. If you take a rock, you throw it against a wall, depending upon the composition of the rock, it's going to be fairly resistant, right? Depending upon how hard the surface is, all that. Uh, it's resilient, but it's not anti-fragile, right? If I throw it against the wall more and more, it doesn't make the rock stronger, generally speaking. So thinking about this, I'm trying to think about this in terms of like cybersecurity and where, you know, concepts like secure by design, secure by default do you think it's it's possible that we can get to a point where, you know, you hear a lot of vendors talk about, uh, you know, self-healing and all that kind of stuff. I think Cisco's, that was Cisco's thing, like the self-healing network like a decade ago, right. right? Do you think it's possible we can get to a point where we can truly develop systems that are anti-fragile in some way, meaning that they actually get stronger from maybe not the extreme, you know, super focused nation state attacks, but from some of those lower ones. Do you see any of this as, as potentially building towards something like that? I, I, I think we can, and there are a couple of examples. Um, and it, right, of course, one of the challenges we think about anti-fragility, and, and, and Talib has, has talked about this in some of his other writings, um, is the notion that having resiliency and anti-fragility often requires a certain amount of redundancy. And we know that redundancy mm -hmm. costs money and organizations have gotten good at efficiency uh, for some things. And one of the things we need to do is sort of underscore the efficiency of security as well. So uh, one of the things as you, as you were talking or that came to mind that's in the secure by design model is right now we have uh, the common practice for shipping software or starting to use a major cloud product uh, in integrating my organization is here it is, and then here's some ways you can make it more secure. Uh, and that doesn't lend itself to good organizational responses. And one of the things we're trying to do is rather than having hardening guides, let's sell things pretty locked down and then have opening guides or, or, you know, I don't want to use the term softening, but essentially figuring out what the integration part looks like so that you're only doing the things that are what you need to make it work for your organization, your context. And each of those is a conscious decision is an active decision by an organization to say, yes, we're turning this piece off. Um, and so now you can have an organization that can document that you can build that into your processes. I think that's interesting because for so long it has, and maybe this is because, you know, software, even as an industry, if you think about, you know, uh, other industries, it's still, it's still pretty new, relatively speaking. And I almost feel like we started out by making things 
not secure by default on purpose because we wanted to encourage usability, right? We wanted to have usability. We wanted to encourage adoption, right? So there's some economics behind, economic drivers behind that. I'm wondering if just, you know, part of this effort is in terms of what you guys are doing at CISA and just in terms of market maturity and expectations, if that's going to shift now, because I don't think we necessarily have to do as much encouraging. People know, you know, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are now. I think people understand like technology's here. It's not going anywhere. The internet's no longer this like new thing. And it's almost like from a software vendor perspective, usability will always be there. The economic driver will always be there. But I think the expectations are what is shifting in terms of like, look, I understand there's going to be trade-offs, but when it comes to security, I I understand that maybe there are some things from a usability perspective that I may need, to, may need to give up initially. So I'm just curious if that kind of fits with what you guys are hearing and what you guys are looking I, at. I, I, th- I think you're, you're, you're channeling a lot of the spirit that was built into this effort is the idea that we, we do need to have some reorientation around what these products look like. Um, and, and also how do we sort of build this into the development processes? Uh, how do we make this something that's integrated into our tools and into our behavior? Um, one of the big challenges in broader application security right now, it's been a hot topic for the last five years is, you know, what can we do to, without changing how developers think or changing their day-to-day work, you know, anything we propose that says, Hey, I've got a new thing for you. It's only going to be a half hour a day. Not so much, but how can we sort of build this in to our processes and our tools and uh, our data flow, starting with our data flows. So I'll, 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 another thing that I think underscores the idea of anti-fragility is uh, a notion called VEX, which is a complement to SBOM. VEX stands for the Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange. Okay. Terrible I'm name. With That's that my fault. Uh, I'm really bad at naming things. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's a security advisory machine readable that can also say that a product is not vulnerable. So in the SBOM example, it's not just SBOM specific, but in the SBOM example says, hey, I'm using this library. So a naive use of the SBOM would say, "Ah, you're using the library, there's a vulnerability in the library, therefore your product is vulnerable. Hmm. So we want a way for the person responsible of that product to communicate this is not affected. Yes, I'm using OpenSSL version 0.9, but I'm not affected by Heartbleed because I'm only using uh, the pseudo random number generator and the compiler has ripped out all the other pieces. Now, what this means is it's a way of rewarding an organization that actually has a good product security team that has said, okay, there's a vulnerability. Does it affect our product? No. Great. Let's tell our customers so they're not bothering us. That lowers our customer support cost, but also gives them the confidence that we're on top of our risks. And this can work for really any type of vulnerability of, you know, yes, we're aware that this is an open source project that may have very few maintainers, um, but 
we can still manage the uh, we're, we're aware of that risk as well facts i have not heard of that is this is this new or has this uh, been out it's for been a while? around for a couple of years um and and is is maturing um it's uh being implemented in a couple of different uh data formats um and in fact uh, some people are much more excited about vex than sbomb uh, especially in the short run because an sbomb model uh requires some tools to consume, right? I need to be able to read the SBOM and then do the mapping and figure out what the risks are. Whereas uh, we did a tabletop exercise with the energy sector and they're like, yeah, we, the short run, what we really want is just tell us if we need to worry about a product or not. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. And I'm, I'm just curious, you mentioned some of the working groups that you guys have at CISA earlier on. So if someone wants to get involved, maybe they, maybe they're early on in their career, maybe they're very senior, they really want to dig in on some of these topics. What are what are the what are some of the ways they can do this? They can get Great. involved. Well the the email address to get in touch with us is sbomb at cisa.dhs.gov. Or uh, I've I've been told that if you just say sbomb three times while looking into a mirror, I'll appear. Uh, no uh, emails <laughs> have been better. It's a little awkward. Uh, the so we have uh, some open uh, working groups that anyone from industry or academia can join. A great opportunity for a student that wants, you know, to rub shoulders with senior people from big companies and learn about startups. Uh, five topics we're working on right now. One of them is this VEX idea. Uh, we're defining it both technically and in practice. Uh, the second is moving metadata around. So I have an SBOM. How do I get it to my customer? I'm a customer at one SBOM. Turns out that's an embarrassing obstacle. Right now, the companies that are sharing SBOMs with their customers are using portals. Uh, those don't scale. Um, the uh, third group is on on-ramps and adoption. How do we communicate the value of caring about software supply chain and, and make it easier and cheaper to engage? So if there are any folks in marketing who want to sort of weigh in on a, a still pretty new project, love to have your input. Uh, we have a group that's focused explicitly on SBOM and cloud, uh, something that, you know, we could talk whole other session on this, uh, which is, hey, what, what does it mean? And there are lots of use cases why you would want an SBOM for a cloud provider, both the people who make it, who are about to sign a contract, you know, what's the tech debt available? Uh, as well as operating it. But we also acknowledge that there are some new things about cloud technology, uh, including right software changes daily, hourly, minutely, uh, microservices, the idea that different customers might get actually using different software. And then of course, the idea that, hey, we want transparency, not just for static dependencies, but for services. Uh, and what does service transparency look like? And then the last group is on tooling and, uh, and, and how do we implement SBOM? And sort of that's the folks that are getting deep into the nuts and bolts of what this means to build an SBOM, to consume an SBOM, and making sure that we're harmonized in our expectations. So tons of work to be done. Our job at CISA is to help build those communities and bring that expertise to bear and also identify what are the voices we don't have at the table uh, and make sure that we've got different corners of the open source world 
different sectors that want to make sure that their voices are heard. So there's always so much going on in cyber. And one of the things I always struggle with is just trying to keep up with, I don't even try to keep up with the news just because I feel like that's impossible, but just, you know, there's so much happening, for example, with, you know, just in the space of AI where you could spend, you know, probably 12 hours a day, right? But just in general, I'm curious for you, what, what's your method for, for staying sharp or what does your routine look like? Um, well, you, you know, it, it used to be a lot easier before Twitter started its slow motion collapse. Uh, and, and I, I will say that I really enjoy, uh, the, the work that's happening that Jerry's doing to create the InfoSec community on Mastodon. So that's, that's a key part of it. Um, couple of podcasts that I listen to regularly in addition to cloud security today. Uh, I thanks for the do want to, uh, no, I, it's, it's a very useful resource, especially because this isn't my domain. Uh, and so it lets me keep the, the big picture. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll also mention, uh, the open source security podcast, uh, which is sort of two old friends who came out of the, the red hat world, um, and, and are very engaged on that front. And of course, um, Patrick Gray's podcast, which is very embarrassing that I forgot it. So give me a moment while I remember what the hell this podcast is called. We can put it in the show notes. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, uh, um, but it's, um, uh, the, uh, risky business, uh, it's okay. the, uh, by Patrick Gray. Um, so, but they're one of the great things is we try to track all of these efforts as they come across. Anyone wants to know more or just stay loosely in touch with the SBOM world, uh, you send us a uh, note to SBOM at cisa.dhs.gov. We have a broadcast list. Maybe once a month, we'll keep you updated. Uh, we had a big community meeting with over a thousand people called our SBOMorama, um, where we sort of got updates from sectors like automotive and financial uh we heard from governments around the world and so we want to continue to have that kind of event as well it's perfect it's perfect well alan this has been a a pretty far-ranging uh conversation it's been very interesting thank you so much for making time to come on the show thanks so much for having me thank you for joining us for today's episode to find out more please visit us at cloudsecuritytoday.com 